Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Childhood, History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan, and this time I have a conversation with Stephanie McBride Schreiner and Kristen McCabe Lashua, historians who have recently or are currently completing their doctoral work. Stephanie was a student of Rachel Fuchs and earned her Ph.D. in November of 2014 from Arizona State University's School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies. Her dissertation was entitled, Medicalizing Childhood, Pediatrics, Public Health, and Children's Hospitals in 19th Century Paris and London. She is pursuing a career in academic publishing and public history. Kristen is defending her dissertation in April at the University of Virginia's Corcoran Department of History. She worked with legal historian Paul Holliday, and her dissertation is entitled Children at the Birth of Empire, 1600 to 1760. She has recently landed a tenure-track position at a small liberal arts college in Southern California. I begin by asking Stephanie and Kristen about how and why they became historians of childhood. I was also interested in how they understand or use the idea of childhood history to explain or represent what they do relative to other fields in the discipline. Then, we turn to questions about the profession of history, the training of historians, and careers in history. I wanted to get their perspective on what are now perennial questions about labor equity at universities, as well as the challenges of job security and scarcity in the social sciences and the humanities. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Take care. Uh, Stephanie, you're in Scottsdale. What's the weather like out there? Oh, the weather is beautiful. It's um, a little warm for my taste in March, but it, it's in the mid-80s, sunny, um, quite nice for spring break weather, I'd say. Oh, I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, how about down in Virginia? How, how's, how's your weather? It's not too bad. You know, it's not freezing, so we're just grateful for that at this point. <laughs> After have, you very, cold, have you had a cold winter? We've had a pretty cold, I mean, for Virginia, it's been pretty cold. So it's nice that it's warming up a little bit. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm glad. I don't have sympathy, really, for, for either of you. <laughs> Here in Ontario, we had our coldest, uh, we had our coldest February, you know, on record. Wow. Well, just, just so you don't feel bad, I grew up in western New York, oh. um, of Buffalo. So for the first 25 years of my life, I I can certainly empathize with your situation. But you were smart enough to get away. 
So, so some of them actually went north. So I guess we have no one to blame but ourselves. Say our our conversation today is a, really about the profession of history, and and I've asked both of you who are are new uh, PhDs or finishing your dissertation, defending later this spring. Uh, to, to really have a conversation with me about the profession, but I, I wanna, I wanna start with um, your work. Perhaps um, we could go to Stephanie first, and you could say a little bit about yourself and your doctoral research. Question is that I have for both of you is why did you choose to engage in the the work that you did uh, as it relates to the history of childhood? So Stephanie, I guess I. I need to go back a little bit further um, before I went back to school because that kind of frames the reason why I entered into the study of um, the history of childhood. I actually was a non-traditional student. I had a major in history um, and undergraduate, and then I ended up working not in the history field, but I ended up working for a nonprofit here in Tempe, Arizona, that serviced children and families. And I coordinated a children's program uh, for nine years. And I was also a child abuse prevention advocate uh, for the state of Arizona as well. And so mm -hmm. I went back to school um, while I was going, I went back for my master's, I should say, while I was still working full time. And I earned my master's one one class at a time, um, and it was at the time that I received my master's. I had a mentor. Her name's Rachel Fuchs, and she uh -huh. she wrote a book called Abandoned Children, where she looked at the um, Paris Foundling Home, and she wrote a social history on the Paris Foundling Home, Enfant Trouvé, and my work expanded on her work, but I, um, because of my own experience, my own career, and working in the social services field with children and families, and those experiences framed my own interests considerably. So my work really looks at the 19th century urban children hospitals as a site for exchange and communication and as opportunities for local and national entities to preserve the health of the nation. And it really was an exciting adventure for me, not only getting to travel to Paris and London and look at the archives, but it, it also was a, it was a journey of discovery. Initially, I probably went into the project wanting to do a social history of institutions. And I ended up in the realm of the history of childhood a little bit by chance. My sources brought me face to face with these children and reading line by line entries in the admission record, I, I started to feel a connection with these children in a way that really brought them to life for me. So in, in your story, you have a, a background in the social policies and institutions that involve families and children, and then you got involved in graduate studies in, in history, and those two worlds were kind of brought together. 
gradually, not necessarily as part of a larger plan, you started paying attention to children within the institutions and thinking about it in that way. And that's that's kind of familiar with in the historiography. We have a, a long-standing literature on policies and institutions and programs. And one of the things that that literature produced over the last 50 years is a more and more attention to the children and youths within the institutions. Kristen, what's 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 your story at, uh, in terms of uh, you know your road to producing your uh, dissertation entitled "Children at the Birth of Empire, 1600 to 1760"? So I became interested in uh, doing children's history as an undergraduate, um, but I decided as I was uh, thinking about graduate school and applying for graduate programs that I wanted to do early modern history and um, specifically early modern uh, history of the British Empire. And I I thought at that point, well, I can't really do children then because it just won't be in the source, uh, the sources. And, you know, I thought the only way I could do history of children or childhood during this period would be sort of like in a, in a schoolhouse setting or maybe in the uh, apprenticeship setting. But I really didn't think I could do it with the empire. So I kind of changed um, my focus a little and started my first semester of graduate school doing a research paper on the Virginia Company. As I was reading through the Virginia Company records, they started talking about shipments of children. I was surprised I didn't know anything about that. And as I sort of started looking into this, um, what you know, what were they talking about sending shipments of children to Jamestown right as the colony was struggle- struggling for survival? I discovered that the city of London and the Virginia Company worked together mm-hmm. to send hundreds of children off the streets of London and send them to Jamestown. So it kind of started there. Then the more I did research, I realized that this wasn't just sort of a, a, a singular occurrence that this actually was the beginning of um, the idea that sending children out into the empire, whether to the colonies or employing them in the Navy, that this could be a philanthropic effort. And so I sort of traced this idea from Jamestown, from those uh, several hundred children sent to Jamestown, through to the Marine Society, which was established to send, equip and send boys into the Navy during the Seven Years' War and sent about 5,000 boys into the Navy during the war. Um, so I talk about the charitable impulses, um, at least what was perceived then as a charitable impulse mm-hmm. to employ children in this way uh, during this time. And then I talk about also that this uh, rise of kidnapping that sprung up right alongside it. Um, this is where we get the word kidnapping. It originally meant to steal children to sell them to plantations in the New World. And so I talk about this sort of legal and illicit um, global migration of children in the early British Empire. So th- those are two, two different stories of, of how people come to the historical study of childhood. How do you each see childhood history relative to other ways you might identify, other fields where you might identify yourself within the discipline of history? Or put it this way, would childhood history even make it into most conversations where you weren't dealing with other historians? That's a really good question, Patrick. I think that listening to Kristen talk and and 
just how, how should you describe looking at the sources and seeing how children are everywhere in these sources that you might not you might not have thought that children would be a big part of the sources. I I have the same situation looking at public health surveys by Edwin Chadwick and French authors like Louis uh, Rene Villemay. Children were everywhere, and children were a huge um, concern um, for whatever period of history that you're looking at, um, at least from the 1600s on. So I really considered myself to be a social historian as I entered into my dissertation writing. And um, the history of childhood was kind of a new discovery for me. And um, and actually, as I got more into my dissertation, I realized that I needed to do a lot more reading on the history of childhood. For me, it was kind of exciting because I felt like I was filling a gap and bringing children into these other these other types of history and historical inquiry. Kristen, I want to give you a chance to jump in in terms of. The categories that we use to divide the discipline, how do you negotiate those, or how have you? And I know you're in the process of having to start this negotiation in a new stage, but what are your thoughts along those lines? Sure. Well, I think as Stephanie was saying, it's, I mean, the history of childhood, to me, one of the things that's so fascinating about it and that is so, makes it so vital is that it really connects a lot of different histories together. And so... You know, I have the history of the family alongside the history of the growth of the state, alongside the history of English law, alongside the history of, um, you know, global exploration. And it is all brought together through using age as a category of analysis. And so I think it's been, you know, it's kind of interesting because sometimes, um, the reaction I'll get from other historians is like childhood. Why would you, why would you want to work on that? But mm-hmm. as you explain sort of your project, I think it becomes clear how relevant it is to a lot of different things that people talk about. And I think too, it helps to have interdisciplinary conversations. I've found, you know, discussing my work with say sociologists or anthropologists or people in different Um, disciplines that they immediately start latching on to different things that I'm talking about. So I think it it helps us to have conversations within uh, the field of history and then to also uh, broaden out the conversations we're having with people outside of our discipline as well. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things that's unique about the field, and this is consistent, I think, with the stories that you're telling, is that childhood is a, a a category where you think about that as either a field of study or a set of questions that that can be addressed historically. Because it's not as well established as some other fields, it puts you in a position of having to justify and to and and to think through and to have a reason for. And in some sense that can be a weakness in that the door might not always be open. Um but it can also be a strength in that good work, good intellectual work, is supposed to be reflexive. It's supposed to have, you're supposed to think about why you're framing questions the way you are. And the degree that it forces us into that 
situation, I think it it probably serves us well. And I think we're all going to, and the thing is, there's not one answer to that, to that question of why. You talk about, let's say, the way that it links with the history of emotions and its development that Kristen was discuss, discussing, a movement away from Lois de Maas's psychohistory toward a broader sense of sensibilities or the question of children's agency, um, the centrality of childhood to the concept of, of biopolitics, if biopolitics is the main, main focus, focus point of understanding the modern state. Those are all different kinds of responses, but one thing that they share is that they're, they're thought-out responses. It seems to me that that's one, one benefit of the area, but that, that's entailed with the fact that it's not particularly well institutionalized. I'd, I'd like to move on to a different a different question. As you're well aware, there have been a, a number of uh, significant labor disputes at universities around North America involving graduate students or part-time faculty. Uh, this is coming at a time where there's also been several decades of discussion about insecurity um, for faculty members questions of overproduction of PhDs, all sorts of labor stability and justice questions. And I would like to ask you about how you've confronted these issues or how you've thought about them. To put it into a question, how do the challenges in this area impact what you've done or what we are doing in departments training the next generation of historians? And perhaps we could start with Kristen this time. Sure. Um, well, this has been a big issue at the University of Virginia where I've been at. Um, they've probably about halfway through my time here, they massively restructured not just the history department uh, graduate program, but the whole um, graduate program across the university, or at least for arts and sciences. And um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, what should a graduate program look like? Uh, what should graduate students be doing? What should they be paid? Like all of these kinds of questions were definitely hotly debated. Um, one thing that I think that was, um, though it wasn't without its, its sort of bumps along the way, one thing that I think was positive that came out of it is that the department um, ended up very much limiting how many students it would accept in the program to begin with. So my incoming class, um, I think was about 23, 24 people, mm -hmm. and incoming classes now are about 10. And um, I think that, you know, it is wise to look at the market now and just say we can't keep producing this many PhDs when there just aren't enough jobs for them. And I think it's in some ways a lot kinder to um, limit the intake into graduate programs rather than have someone go you know, six or seven years through a graduate program only to find they can't have find a job on the other end. So I think that's been helpful. But I think one thing that's kind of harmful and the way that I look at it is probably filtered through my interest in childhood is this idea of graduate school as an apprenticeship. And this idea, I think, kind of is formulated in the way of, well, graduate students do all this work and they don't really get paid very well, but it's okay because they're learning this trade, this profession, and then they'll graduate and go off and, you know, get these jobs and it will be great. And it's like, 
that's not actually the story that statistically is true for a lot of people. And so I think we do have to ask a lot of hard questions about, you know, what should graduate school look like knowing that um, that most people aren't going to find that tenure-track job at the end of it. And if you take the co- a cohort of people that received their doctorates from 1998 to 2009, the AHA just did a, a study, just published a study about a year ago on this, but if you take that 10-year cohort or the section of those PhDs that uh, stayed in the academy have academic positions, about a quarter of them, 25% of them, have uh, positions in part-time adjunct uh, temporary positions. And to speak to that, just to speak to that concern, if you take a look at then what those contracts are, they're not, you can't live on that, or, or it's extremely difficult to live on that unless someone else in your household mm-hmm. is essentially paying the bills. And I think that's, when you get up to a quarter of the people who are working in the academic part of the industry, you know, that made it through that part, that are in that situation, I think that's a, a very significant ethical dilemma, and it certainly undermines the notion that, well, uh, Future returns is what uh, justified the un- unjust relationships for graduate students. Right, exactly. Stephanie, what's your what's your sense of, of these issues or your experience of these issues? What would you add? Well, Patrick, I would um, reiterate, I think what Kristen was describing at the University of Virginia is happening around the nation um, in North America. I know... Um, our graduate degree programs, there's been a lot of conversations about limiting um, the number of incoming doctoral students. Yeah. Uh, there's also been an increased, um, at least at Arizona State, of um, graduate certificate programs as well that um, train students to have a particular skill. And I've been fortunate because at Arizona State University, there's a very strong public history program. Mm-hmm. And so when I entered my doctoral studies and actually entered the program, I also entered into a certificate program that I did concurrently, and it was a certificate in scholarly publishing. And my idea of doing that was it was a backup for me. Um, it was a skill that I knew if I had a certificate in scholarly publishing and I did internships in the publishing arena, I would have a backup. And as it turned out, um, I actually really enjoyed working in that field of scholarly publishing, and I ended up deciding not to go down the teaching path. So although I was a grader and a teaching assistant for four years, um, I also took the public history methodology class and participated in a number of contract jobs, actually, through the public history program where I was doing local public history projects, everything from writing books to museum design and museum interpretive designs, um, working for journals, um, through the university, and so I tried to broaden my skill set beyond just 
the teaching aspect and envision myself working outside academia. And that's the point that I'm at now. Actually, I'm applying all of the jobs that I'm applying for are outside academia, working at museums, um, for publishers, scholarly publishers. The public history program um, really offered me kind of a safety valve um, initially, but I found out that there really are a lot of jobs outside academia that I that are stimulating and rewarding and interesting to me. So in a sense, that's a, a kind of response that's important in your life, but it's connected to another way that institutions have responded to right. this, this set of problems because they developed public history programs that you could participate in in curriculum to try to prepare you for that area of the, of the market. And I think that referring back to the recent uh, AHA study, um, and I'm blanking on the Townsend's one of the authors, there's another author, but um, I think it's a very significant uh, percentage of PhDs work outside of the academy in these kinds of positions. It, it might be um, between a quarter and a third, if I'm remembering the percentage. And, and just to draw then also on Kristen's point of lowering the, the number of, of uh, positions in graduate programs, part of that is also very institutionally driven. In Ontario here for a long time, and it's still actually the case, the province would 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 fund graduate students so much more than they would undergraduates multiple times for every uh, undergrad uh, for every graduate students and master's students being worth less than PhD students that there was a premium in terms of generating institutional resources on expanding your classes of graduate students as hard, large, large as you could get them regardless of whether or not that was merited in terms of the things that were happening in the economy. And that still is going on, but it seems to me that there's been a, a recognition that that creates a problem. And particularly in schools of education, I think that they're getting smaller, which is important if you're engaged in in the area of childhood. Kristen, one of the ways that that Stephanie has you know, confronted the insecurity is is that's inherent in in becoming a historian is is through public history and the world of publishing. How are you doing it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So this was my uh, first year on the job market, and um, so that comes with a lot of anxiety. Obviously, um, I was actually uh, very fortunate to get a tenure track offer. Um, so. I, I will be going to a, a small liberal arts college and doing a lot of teaching, which I'm excited about. Um, but before that offer came through, before I knew that there would be an offer, I was thinking about a lot of different options. And um, I was thinking about going into publishing and academic publishing. And so I think, I think for a while, I think it still remains, there's this kind of stigma, you know, that if you don't end up with a job, there's that it's some, uh, an academic job, I should say specifically, that, it's, that it's, it's a kind of failure on your part. It is just not the case. Um, it's just statistically there aren't enough jobs for the number of PhDs that are being uh, produced and that it's not strictly based on merit, that there's a lot of sometimes very strange things that go into a job search that you 
aren't in control of necessarily. So I think it's good that um, that we're having conversations about different options for people and that, that they're all good or hopefully they're all good options for them as long as they're happy in finding jobs that are fulfilling, um, that it doesn't have to be strictly in academia. Yeah, and, and which which leads to another obstacle, but I'm not sure how we would do So there's public history, there's publishing, but I think about, um, about education, because for historians, what would be the obvious area that could relieve a lot of stress on the profession along these lines would be if there was a clear avenue from graduate studies in history and secondary education in social studies and history. But there are a lot of barriers along those ways, along the way. Right. So one of the things I was thinking about was teaching um, high school. Mm -hmm. And then I was as I was looking into the requirements um, in at least in the state I grew up in, in Washington state, even though I had a Ph.D. or I would have a Ph.D. in history, I would not be qualified to teach high school history (laughs) because I wouldn't have a master's in education. And so the idea of then, you know, getting your PhD and then going back and doing an additional master's, which is kind of exhausting to contemplate and, and kind of absurd in a certain sense that I would be qualified to teach college students, but not high school students. And so, yeah, I think that there are sometimes in, in going into education, um, at least public education here, there are sometimes these very strange obstacles. Yeah. And, and, in a sense, without throwing any stones at the profession of education, this is the logic of professionalization that we're part of, too, as historians with the credentialism. We have ours, and there are, there are areas of turf that get carved up in terms of who who has the you know credential to apply for the job, but it grinds on in individuals in particular ways, and the absurdities that you're... I, I can just think of a particular... Someone that I met when I was a graduate student, Tony Rotundo, and he's a uh, went to uh, got his PhD from Brandeis. Uh, I think the very similar classes. Uh, my dissertation advisor, Mike Grossberg. So they were friends. That's how I met Tony. But the other reason I had met him is because he had just published recently published what was a, a, a you know we use the word path breaking to too lightly, but certainly uh, an important book, American Manhood, which was a study, uh, late 80s, early 90s, in um, masculinity, the history of masculinity. Mm-hmm. He, his whole career has been at uh, Phillips Academy in Andover, mm-hmm. which is a late 18th century. I mean, it's one of the most prestigious high schools in, in the U.S., sure. one of the old, you know, one of, our, one of our best. So if you have a Ph.D., you could end up at uh, Phillips Academy, but not necessarily at Central High School. Right. <laughs> in, in whatever town. And it seems to me that that uh, structure, the structure of teacher certification, is something that's perhaps politically it's a brick wall, but if we're really serious about solving the problem, that might have to be dealt with. I don't know what your thoughts are about these issues, Stephanie. Well, you know, it's interesting, Patrick, because... As, as I was listening to you and Kristen talk about education, I was thinking of all of the opportunities for education, youth education, and teaching history to children in public history organizations. 
and I'm thinking of museums, mm-hmm. libraries, and um, certainly looking at museum jobs, um, certainly one important component, I feel, of the museum is to have youth education programs um, to teach children the history and heritage of a locality or of a personage. Um, this is a that's an exciting opportunity, I think, to um, not only promote the history of childhood um, to the larger community, but also <laughs> engage children in learning about history. Um, it's, you know, the history of childhood, too, I think, when I go to a museum or I go to a library, I don't really see a lot about the history of childhood, but I think it's a, a really appropriate place to discuss the history of childhood and to have exhibits um, that are related to the ch- history of childhood. Well, Stephanie and Kristen, thanks so much for being part of this episode of Childhood History and Critique. And Thank you. Hopefully we'll see each other down the road. Okay. Yes, good. And I just want to say good luck on your defense and uh, congratulations on your tenure track job. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Take care, guys. All right, thanks. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.